Welcome to the Rethinker Podcast, asking the why questions to connect faith with culture. Thinker Podcast is a place where we look at Scripture, God's laws, Jesus' parables, and other aspects of faith to kind of extract a deeper meaning and in certain cases do a rethink of some of the things that we may take for granted of in Scripture. And in the last podcast, we talked about how the wages of the vocation of sin is death. And that while people want to engage in the pleasurable aspect of sin, they don't recognize that the wage is attached to it. We're going to carry on a little bit more on that and talk about that you know, well, well, the Bible does claim that the wages of sin is death. Many people really appear to get off scot-free. And we certainly see much of our society engaging in sinful behaviors only to appear to blissfully meander through life supposedly unscathed. Now, you can har- harbor the righteous hope that, or self-righteous hope, really, that they'll get theirs in the end. But is that any way to see another person made in God's image? It is a believer practicing restraint from many of society's greatest pleasures. I wonder if you've ever thought, you know, what gives? Solomon and David struggled with this millennia ago, but what about today? Society has sanctioned many sinful behaviors, actions that are now governmentally legal, but are still not approved by God and his mandates. So is the concept of sin growing irrelevant if those engaging in it never seem to experience that wage that we talked about in podcast in the last podcast? To answer that question, I will ask a different question. Would you say that a two-year-old child, although a living member of mankind, has reached his or her full human potential? The answer is, of course not. A two-year-old is constantly maturing into what he or she was designed to eventually be. But the baby does not stay two forever. So let's suppose that you're a rather fit individual with an above-average amount of strength. Though the two-year-old may grow up to be a 325-pound linebacker in his maturity, it's hardly probable that at the age of two you could still control the child. Obviously you could. Even as the child reached the beginning of his teen years, it is likely that your, your strength could subdue the young fledgling of a man. But how about during his early college years when he's reached 260 pounds, each 9,000 calories a day, runs the 40-yard dash in 4.4 seconds, and curls dumbbells weighing over 100 pounds? So what happened? How did the little child that was so easily subdued become the behemoth capable of rendering indescribable pain on you and your fit torso? The child went through the natural process of maturity, and during that process gained strength, size, and stamina. Eventually, this child overthrew your ability to control him. In the same way, sin kind of masquerades as a little infant, easily controllable by its adopter. Notice the control that secular humanism appears to warrant over sinful pleasure. This is from the Humanist Manifesto, too. Short of harming others or compelling them to do likewise, individuals should be permitted to express their sexual proclivities and pursue their lifestyles as they desire. The problem is, as sin is embraced, it begins to grow into its mature state, death. Once sin continues to mature, it becomes less and less controllable, and eventually the action no longer even resembles pleasure. Hollywood often portrays these downward spirals in films such as Blow, Traffic, Less Than Zero, leaving Las Vegas, or when, when a man loves a woman, and countless others, while never grasping that the end result of death, addiction, and misery is not some disconnected outcome, but the very intent. Addiction in any form merely requires a motion that does not produce pleasure, but instead momentarily anesthetizes the pain that has been produced from the action itself. It's an endless and brutal cycle. Just without warning, 
One day the two-year-old baby becomes the linebacker with strength enough to subdue you. So mankind does not control at what moment sin matures into death or addiction, as you discovered in podcast 15. Now, let's not get so macro here as Christians often do with this wages of sin is death verse. Death doesn't have to be so final here. Little deaths occur from the first time one engages in sin, such as the death of brain mass during drug usage, the death of self-respect after a sexual desire turns south, the death of a family relationship when daddy chooses one quick hidden night of passion on a business trip, or the death of self-control as nicotine overtakes the curious smoker. The list goes on and on. Death occurs whether we are aware of it or not. Ultimate death is the full maturity of sin, but like our linebacker, even as a young man in college, or even late in high school, it is still likely he could overtake you in a fight, even if he hasn't reached his full maturity. When sin matures, its consequences are often far more devastating than just the death of the individual involved. Let me give you a hypothetical scenario. Suppose a particular chain resort were to focus its media marketing predominantly on the free-spiritedness of sexual behavior and expression. By choosing to globally market in such a manner, these resorts would no doubt flourish with throngs of sexually promiscuous and pleasure-centered individuals. That is the demographic they chose as their core target audience. With its profitable demographic secured, the resort would encourage freedom of sexuality through its events, games, and nightlife. But let's say a finding were to surface that in the last five years, 30% of those that contracted AIDS in the U.S. had visited this particular resort chain. And of that cohort, although although having numerous partners prior to and after their resort visit, 75% of them had contracted the disease only after their visits. Perhaps the study began to pick up some media steam and a large weekly global magazine decided to publish an article describing these findings under the headline, AIDS Resort. Now, the hotel staff and management and its corporate executives could attempt to distance themselves from any blame, citing a stricter, safer sex policy and providing a steady supply of condoms in every resort bedroom. But after a story such as this floods the national and international media, what happens to the tourism numbers at the resort? Moreover, the resort has an indelibly branded with a label that its PR team can't fully wear off. Even if the resort chooses, chooses to redirect its marketing towards wholesome family fun, could the resort fully shake its inflicting and detrimental moniker? Free-spirited sexuality was the quick and immediate marketing draw, but the objective and immutable biological destruction from maturing sin's behavior became the catalyst to the resort and its patrons' demise. Moreover, those employed at the resort would also suffer serious recourse, for if there were no more jobs, there would be no more resort. It is also likely that the employees would find new employment a difficult proposition. For what other local establishment would hire these past employees, knowing that their own customer base might be highly offended to learn that their 10-year-old's arts and crafts lesson was being conducted by the former activities director at AIDS Resort? The potential and overall continual damage of the previous employees is staggering. The parent corporation has suffered major losses, and numerous former guests are now permanent patrons of AIDS clinics, hospitals, and morgues all because of the sinful money-making decision of the corporation's executive team. This says nothing of the innocent townspeople in the resort area, having fed and raised their families on the money collected from selling their wares to resort patrons. What do you suppose happens to them and their desire to live prosperous and peaceful lives? Now, let's go back. Where does our humanist quote fit now? Short of harming others or compelling them to do likewise, Individuals should be permitted to express their sexual proclivities and pursue their lifestyles as they desire. Despite claims or even desires to the contrary, 
harm was brought to others, not simply through their intentional actions, but through unintended outcomes. The proceeding was a hypothetical scenario, of course, but its reality transpires all around us. Spend any time with a doctor, a psychologist, a police officer, and the like, and you will hear story upon story of the effects of outcomes that vastly surpass the benefits of their initial actions. Now, let me ask a question you're probably thinking. Does this take away from the spiritual side of sin's damage? Absolutely not. But it helps us more fully understand God's love and compassion for his greatest creation, humanity. We see his love not in the restriction of actions, but in his liberation from outcomes. God desires that none should perish, not just spiritually, but in all aspects of their lives, both here on this earth and in the life or death to come. Sin masquerades as an infant only to decimate and destroy when it reaches its intended maturity. We haven't made much headway by berating people for playing with the infant. Perhaps it's time to start lovingly observing, illuminating, and addressing sin in its mature state. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I look forward to engaging you further. I would love to interact and dialogue with you. So if you want to reach me on my email address at dlitwin11 at gmail.com, you can reach me there. You can also go to davidwlitwin.com. There you can really get a 360-degree view of who I am, what I do, and what I believe. And uh, read some articles there, read my testimony, various other things. I hope you have a glorious day or evening, depending on when you listen to this. And remember always to live inspired.